This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Clara Cook. Hi Clara, how are you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> I think we're all kind Sorry, of... Sorry, I shouldn't have asked you that. Just Before we even started recording, you, you told me that you stopped, uh, <laughs> stopped asking people that question. I, I, don't know, I can't think of an alternative. I feel like maybe That's the Bajorans would have a kind of spiritual alternative. There's you know, no alternative. Uh, <laughs> I, guess you, I guess you could ask, you know, like, how is your day? Mm, no, there's no alternative. Because no. how are you is a nice thing to say to people. Like, how are you is a mm. nice thing. But I don't think anybody really has a good answer for that at the moment. No. In the UK. No, that's Maybe true. somebody in New Zealand or... Yeah. Or Guernsey. Or Guernsey. Although actually, I think they may, they may have finally <laughs> gone into lockdown now. But Guernsey, because obviously I have, uh, you know, friends in Guernsey and, and kind of keep somewhat abreast of what's going on there. They basically... I think pretty much stayed open the whole time. They managed to avoid uh, any kind of lockdown. So like for months, while we were all, you know, miserably stuck at home, I was seeing pictures of, you know, their parties and uh, events <laughs> and, you know, great gatherings and all these things. And it just feels like another world. But yeah, no, you're right. It's a, uh, maybe it's the wrong question to I ask. I could say but, I'm um, healthy. I could say I'm healthy. You're and healthy I'm, and, and podcasting. And, and I'm podcasting. And podcasting. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we have a topic. I feel like for once we have a topic which is, it's not an unserious topic, but I think it's hopefully not as kind of horrifically depressing and and uh, awful as, as some of the topics <laughs> that we tend to tackle. Um, I'm hoping this one will be, you know, an interesting conversation, but but not go to hugely dark areas. But, you know, who knows? I could be proven wrong. We're going to talk about the season one DS9 finale in the hands of the prophets and some of the influences on that, both from real world history and from the world of film. In particular, the movie Inherit the Wind. Uh, There's a quote in the 50 year mission where Iris Stephen Bear says, on one level, you could just say that within the hands of the prophets, we were doing Inherit the Wind. But I think it enabled us as a specific television series to explore the Bajoran spiritual life. And I don't know about you. I, I personally think that's true. I mean, I think there are a lot of parallels between that movie and the true story that inspired it and the DS9 episode. But the DS9 episode also brings in a lot of its own stuff. It's not one of those Star Trek episodes where once you've kind of gone to the source material, there's nothing left. There's nothing new in the kind of 
sci-fi version of it. Uh, I mean, I've always thought this is a fantastic episode and I still do, having looked into the background of it a little bit more and the kind of history of it, I think it, it works brilliantly and they make a number of great decisions. Um, but before we go into sort of discussing it in detail, Clara, why don't you just give us a little bit of background on the movie, the 1960 movie? Uh, OK, so Inherit the Wind was a film that came out in 1960, as you said. It's based on a play um, that was uh, first performed in 1955 as a fictionalised account of the 1925 Scopes monkey trial. So it's basically, and we'll talk a bit more about the trial in a bit, but it's basically the sort of debate between... Um, uh, religious the, the religious view of evolution which is like the creationist um story in, in genesis and then obviously darwin's um theory of evolution and it's basically a situation where a science teacher working in a school a high school in a sort of a, a small town in the south uh, is arrested and then prosecuted for teaching science against the law. And the law is basically that you can't teach any other science other than, or you can't teach any other sort of creation story other than the creation story in the Bible. It's used as a medium to sort of discuss McCarthyism in Hollywood at the time. And um, one of the things that's interesting about it is the script was adapted from the play by a guy called Nedrick Young, who was blacklisted and so had to uh, basically write the script under the pseudonym um, Nathan E. Douglas, and he was hired by the director, Stanley Kramer, which I think goes to Stanley Kramer's credit that he refused to like not hire someone simply because they've been blacklisted by the McCarthy trials. But um, it stars Spencer Tracy, very famous actor, who plays uh, the lawyer Henry Drummond, who is on the side of science and fighting for the right for this particular high school teacher to teach Darwin. And then it stars Frederick March playing Matt Brady, who is this sort of Christian, very religious uh, lawyer who has been a been a senator and he's he's been a politician and ran for for the, for the presidency um, of the US. And he is like the local. Well, I wouldn't say local, but he's a, he's a he's a national hero that's worshipped by the local people. And he is the lawyer who's the prosecution, who's basically um, arguing for the law. And then it stars Gene Kelly in a very unusual role for Gene Kelly. He's not singing or dancing in the rain or otherwise. Um, he is uh, playing a local, not local, he's playing a, a newspaper reporter, like a city newspaper reporter who's quite cynical, who's an atheist. Uh, or at least you think he's an atheist. He sort of implies he doesn't believe in religion. And also is funding the defence of the science teacher and is basically seen as a great story. And then it stars Dick York, who's the young science teacher, who a lot of viewers will know as he went on to be in a very famous tv show in the u.s i dream of genie i think it's called where he plays like the long-suffering husband of a woman who i think is a genie or maybe he was in bewitched i don't know anyway either way he plays the long-suffering husband of a magical woman whereas in this film he plays a young science teacher who's trying <laughs> to teach science to his students who gets arrested for it and not um, magic <laughs> not magic yes very no very firmly rooted, no yeah. rooted in fact yeah. this story weirdly this film has been remade multiple times so obviously it was an original factual trial that happened in real life then it became a play then it became this film in 1960 um then it was made again for tv in 1965 and then it was made again in 1988 for tv and then it was made again as another TV film in 1999. So it just goes to show that Americans are kind of obsessed with this particular story. 
Um, because I think it sort of pitches like religious America against scientific America and the idea of two different clashing ideologies and how do you reconcile those two ideologies in a population, which is kind of what you see in the DS9 episode. Uh, it goes to the heart of something quite kind of fundamental, I suppose, uh, for want of a better word, about, yeah, the sort of American national psyche, I suppose, which is that sense that it's a country of two, or maybe it's a country of more than two halves, but do you know what I mean? That it's it's very much, there are different versions of what America is and what that represents and so on. And, you know, even now we kind of have it with Trump and the kind of bitter division in the country now with, you know, those who absolutely can't stand Trump and those who, for whatever reason, adore him, you know. And and that kind of falls in some ways along some of those similar lines. And it, and it might be different issues. As you say, you know, this story was kind of used at the time in the, in 1960 to kind of, uh, throw a spotlight on McCarthyism, so as a kind of a, almost a kind of allegory in a sense, or at least kind of trying to um, make that connection. Obviously, you know, it's also a story that can then be transported into the future in Deep Space Nine. It's, it, it, I suppose, it's a kind of fundamental battle in a way between sort of reason and um, superstition, almost. And, and, and I guess also, if you think of like, say, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which is obviously famously. Uh, about McCarthyism, even though it's ostensibly a play about uh, witch trials, you know, there, there's again this sort of sense that the McCarthy project is a kind of, it is almost a kind of religion. It's almost it's this kind of superstition. It's this kind of paranoia. It's, it's it kind of it goes against reason and and the kind of rational and so on. And certainly that's what's sort of going on in the film and, and even in real life. I think I mean the the real life trial. You're right. The the film sticks quite closely to the real events. The script is very heavily based on the court transcript. So a lot of the speeches that are in the film are taken word for word. There's quite an interesting um, bit in the, the kind of liner notes in my Blu-ray of the film. It has a little essay by Stanley Kramer, who directed it. Um, and he says, basically, they sort of did want to tell, essentially tell the true story, but they were afraid of being sued for libel uh, by some of the people. So that's why they ended up changing the name. So so these two lawyers, you, you know, in, in reality, uh, there was a lawyer called Clarence Darrow, who was the defence lawyer, who was a massive celebrity, probably the most famous lawyer in America at the time. He'd recently come off of a kind of huge case that had attracted a lot of national attention. And he was an agnostic himself, so he was kind of keen to to defend the the teacher. Um, and then on the prosecution side, there was um, a guy called Brian, similar to Brady. I guess Brian became Brady. Uh, and Brian was indeed a politician, uh, a former Secretary of State, someone who'd run for president several times, you know, so again, a well-known national figure. So in a sense, it was this extraordinary situation where this small town in Tennessee, Dayton, Tennessee, uh, which had a population of only 2,000 people, uh, became the centre of this massive debate, a, d a debate that somehow meant something to the whole of America that, that became this real sort of, uh, you know, focal point for this... Uh, battle of ideas i suppose and battle of you know as in the ds9 episode they talk about the philosophies uh cisco says there's room for all philosophies here i suppose the problem is there isn't in you, you know in these situations there isn't really or at least there might be room for everyone to believe what they want and to kind of coexist peaceably but you know what triggered all of this off was a law that had been passed in tennessee uh prohibiting the teaching of Darwinism in schools and basically saying that you can't teach anything in a, a public school that 
uh, contradicts the word of the Bible. And this was a change. I mean, up till that point, Darwinism had been taught in schools. Uh, and, you know, the textbook that the science... Well, he, this is a whole other issue. He wasn't in the film. He's a science teacher, which makes sense. In reality, he was actually a kind of uh, a PE teacher. He was a, a sports coach who had kind of taught a little bit of science. Um, yeah, he was He was convinced by the ACLU, wasn't he, to, to, mm. to, to willingly be arrested so they could challenge this law. In Whereas in the film, he is actually just like arrested he's not so he doesn't volunteer himself to change the law no although in that first scene of the film there are cameras in his class do you know what i mean it seems like the fact that there are cameras there suggests that someone's been tipped off or something he obviously knows he knows it's gonna happen happening yeah uh he he, but yes absolutely the the true story which you can understand why they would change when they fictionalize it is that the whole trial itself was not a sham exactly but it, it was a kind of show trial i suppose insofar as this law was passed the aclu uh, the American Civil Liberties Union were very unhappy about it and actually placed newspaper ads asking for teachers who would be willing to, you know, to kind of create a test case to um, debate this issue, basically, and try and get this law overturned. And another element of the, you know, the, the legal side of the trial is kind of interesting in some ways. I mean, obviously, DS9 doesn't do it. They could have done it as a courtroom drama and they don't. They go for this much more... Uh, in some ways more dramatic, you know, we've got assassinations, we've got bombs, we've got, you know, all this kind of big action uh, side of it that isn't there in the original story. But even the trial itself, in reality, was not really intended to resolve the issue because the assumption on the defence's part was that they couldn't really avoid a guilty verdict because their client was admitting that he'd done something which was technically illegal. Uh, What they were hoping to do was to make enough of a case and to get the right arguments out there that when the trial, when they appealed the trial and took it to a higher court, uh, they would be able to overturn uh, this act, the Butler Act, at that point and to kind of get the law changed. So it was... It was a kind of strategy in a sense. So so as much as it's this battle of ideas and these kind of uh, ideologies and these two, kind of two great men making these opposing, uh, representing these opposing positions, there's also an element in which it's quite a kind of technical legal procedure. Um, and a lot of it is to do with, you know, well, we have to get... So, so there's a whole section of testimony, for example, that the jury aren't allowed to hear, but the defence insists has to be gone through in order that it's kind of on the record and that when the case is referred up to the next court up, um, that will kind of be there. That will be part of their case, even though the jury were never allowed to hear it. Um, and in fact, what happened was, uh, again, weirdly because of a technicality, although the guy was found guilty and was fined by the judge $100, um, they never got to do their appeal uh, because it was discovered that the judge had... Um, made a mistake essentially in in how the fine was uh was arranged and therefore the verdict had to be thrown out so the whole thing kind of went away it sort of got brushed under the carpet but in the meantime it had become this complete circus i mean you get a sense of that in the film uh the the number of people taking an interest the kind of uh strong opinions i suppose on both sides the fact that they they show in the film someone's brought a monkey along outside and indeed there was apparently a gorilla uh, brought outside the courthouse. You know, there were singers, dancers, entertainers. I mean, the the gatherings on the promenade in the DS9 episode seem very tame in a sense in comparison to the kind of wild atmosphere that surrounded this courthouse in this tiny uh, town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, People gathered on the lawn outside the courthouse. At one point, the judge even took the case because it was so it was also bakingly hot and everyone was like in their shirt sleeves and dripping with sweat and at one point the judge moved the proceedings out onto the lawn 
so effectively opening them completely up to the public so everyone could uh, get a view of what was happening and get a view of this kind of uh, great debate. But there, there was indeed a, you know, a gorilla there that people were going and staring at and saying, you know, can I possibly, you know, having this debate on their own terms, you know, could I possibly be related to this animal and what does it mean? Uh, trying to sort of bring the idea of evolution uh, into their lives i suppose and for what it's worth when they polled the jury you know when they were trying to select the jury and asking them questions um i think the majority of the jurors said they didn't actually know what evolution was so you know this i suppose that's the thing is this was being taught in schools but this is a very uh, religious community uh 85 of the population of the town of dayton uh said they define themselves as fundamentalist Christians, which I suppose that's the issue. It's between sort of fundamentalist Christianity and what was known as modernist Christianity, uh, which I suppose we would think of as the more sort of moderate, reasonable, the ones who say, well, okay, we believe the Bible, but we don't necessarily believe every word literally. Um, And the fundamentalists who say, no, if it's it's in that, if it's in those books, you know, if if it's written down like that, that is exactly what happened. and, And we have to accept that and anything that contradicts that can't possibly be right um so in that town these were you you know in some ways these were quite unfamiliar ideas that were being uh brought in and, and and quite threatening to people for a number of reasons yeah i think also as well um it was one of the first trials or at least one of the only trials around that time to be broadcast over radio so that was another thing. It was going out to the whole country. So that must have led to, I mean, in the movie they show this, it leads to sort of like grandiose behaviour on behalf of like, on the part of like the different speakers. They know they're being heard, you know, across the country. So they're going to start being more like using more oratory skills and they're going to start being more dramatic. I think the movie it, um, has to make uh, the, the has to make a more... Uh, I think the movie has to create a sense of peril in order for there to be a dramatic centre at the heart of, of, of the story. And so that's why I think they really do um, make it out that this young man is going to lose. He could possibly be imprisoned. He's going to lose his, his, his ability to teach. You know, he's engaged to a young woman um, who he wants to start a life with, um, who's uh, quite firmly rooted in this religious community. You know, and and so it, it it sort of puts all of his future in doubt, which is why the trial seems they have to do that in a movie, I think, to create a sense of drama. Um, which they is bring why in the a kind of Romeo and Juliet subplot in a sense, don't they? Because she's the daughter of the kind of fire and brimstone, quite terrifying uh, fire and brimstone preacher, who even the kind of you know religious ideologue uh, lawyer uh, ends up kind of having to calm down a mob that he's kind of whipped up this this preacher so they they sort of bring in a romance but also a kind of i suppose they sort of personalize it they personalize that tension by putting her in the middle of it yeah and they go into more detail about the actual feelings and personal beliefs of the prosecution lawyer and the defense lawyer there's a scene like they're old friends there's a scene where they're sitting on rocking chairs and they sort of talk about belief and about like having something to hope um, for and religion and everything, which is actually quite insightful about the two individual men and how they see the world. I think the thing that struck me the most, though, um, out of this film, and I mean, there's lots of things that struck me. I wrote 
pages of notes because I found it incredibly insightful. I mean, you could link it to today's America. You, you could even link it, to be honest, to people's differing opinions about coronavirus, you know. But I think one of the things um, that really, really struck me that is then reflected in the DS9 episode is that, and it's something Cisco says to Vedic Wynn, who I want to tell our listeners, I completely forgot she was a Vedic. I simply just remembered her as a really bad Kai. <laughs> and so then I realised at this point in the series, she's still a Vedic. And I was like, oh God, I know where this is going. <laughs> like, um, but, I, but it's something he specifically said to um, her, which is also something that uh, Drummond, who is the uh, defence lawyer, he's the, 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 the guy who's played by Spencer Tracy, who believes in Darwinism and is arguing for Darwinism, or at least arguing for Darwinism to be allowed to be considered as well as the Bible. Um, it's something that he said to Brady, who's the prosecution lawyer, which is, it's going beyond saying, you know, the Bible's right and Darwinism is wrong, or uh, Vedic Wynn, sorry, saying that, you know, the the wormhole is not a scientific phenomena it is the temple of celestial temple of the prophets you know that keiko is wrong and the prophets are right it goes beyond that it's that uh Quinn, sorry is acting as if she's speaking for the prophets as if she is like got a direct line to the prophets and that if she's the only one who can interpret the prophets a little bit like how brady towards the end of inherit the wind is talking as if god is speaking to him and his interpretation of the bible is the only interpretation and like, there's a level of egotism there. It's like, you're not just, you're not just, you don't just believe in this religion. You're using this religion for, as a sense of like personal power to hold over other people. And in a way, that's what Vedic Wynn's doing. Like, it doesn't really matter if it's the Bajoran religion. It could be some other religion. It's just that she's using the religion to like exert power over people, to give herself a place of power. Whereas Keiko and the young, science teacher in Inherit the Wind, they're not teaching science to give themselves power. They're trying to open the minds of their students. Vedic Wynn isn't trying to open the minds of the young Bajorans to Bajoran like religion. And in a way, Brady is not trying to open the minds of the people in the town to Christianity. They're using that religion as a sense of personal power. Like, I can speak to God and God and God is telling me this is how we interpret the Bible and my interpretation is the only interpretation and no one else can be right. And rightly so, both of them get called out, you know, and both of them don't like hearing that. And because it's true. And one of the most extraordinary things uh, that happened in the real life trial, as you know, as, as well as in the movie, is the idea that the prosecuting attorney gets put on the stand and interrogated as an expert, as a kind of expert witness, which is, I suppose, how he's represented himself in that he's the man of God. He's the man, of, you know, the, the great Christian who's come to do battle with this uh, agnostic. Um, but he he then ends up on the stand. And I think because he was a bit of an egotist and a bit of a kind of, uh, you, you know, he quite enjoyed being this celebrity figure in a sense he was kind of willing to go along with that even though in some ways you can see it's a bit of a stitch up that darrow um puts brian on the stand in order to essentially dismantle his uh 
claims about the Bible. So he goes through quite sort of forensically, you know, he, he says to him, so you believe that every word in this book is literally true, do you? And he says, yes. And then he, he says, uh, okay, so let's talk about Jonah and the whale. You really believe that there was a whale that could swallow a man and all this stuff could happen. And he says, yes, I believe that God can do these things. And he gives this quite beautiful example, which I think they use in the film where he says, uh, my hand can lift a glass of water which means defying the laws of gravity and i'm only a man so just think what god can do with his hands essentially to kind of defy the laws of nature in other ways but then he goes into all this kind of literal reading of of the book of genesis and so on and saying you know so how long were the days are the days that are referred to in the bible equivalent to our 24-hour days and they start quibbling interestingly for ds9 where they have a 26-hour day because they're at a bajoran uh station they start arguing about you know could there have been 32-hour days could a day have been a month could a day do you know what I mean? could a day mean a year what, what do all these words mean um and then he starts kind of nitpicking he has this great line um he said uh there's as well as this movie, I mean, you, you mentioned all these various remakes and adaptations of this story. There is also one that I would particularly recommend is on Audible. You can get an audio recording of not the play that the film is based on, but a kind of theatre production, which is essentially just a recreation of the trial uh, with a little bit of kind of, there's a sort of narrator who fills in some of the details, but it's basically just actors reading the sort of court transcripts uh, and features two uh, Star Trek actors uh jerry harding who was mark twain and john delancey who plays clarence darrow the kind of uh brilliant defense attorney and he john delancey is perfectly kind of cast in that role because he has this kind of quite sarcastic quite sort of cutting uh sort of withering style um and he has this he's quite harsh the, the things that he says to brian he accuses him of having a full religion uh, basically taking all this literally you know he's saying i've got no problems with christianity i think you know there's there's no real conflict between darwinism and christianity if you're willing to interpret the bible to interpret it essentially to, to see it as something that requires interpretation rather than just believing literally in everything that's in there and there's this great bit where he says to him did you ever consider where Cain Adam and Eve's son got his wife so it's this kind of like you know it's it's this sort of forensic nitpicking basically saying look this story that you claim is true doesn't make sense this thing doesn't make sense how do you account for this how do you explain this and in some ways it's very effective and I think on screen it's very effective as well but actually in reality in the courtroom um my understanding is that, you you know, the audience there were much more on the side of Brian, of the Brady character in the movie. Um, you, you know, that in a sense, there's this, there's these two audiences as well. As you say, there's people listening on the radio, there's the nation watching one way or another, you know, keen to follow this story. And so they're making these arguments are being played out, not just within the court, but kind of for a wider world somehow which is not exactly what's going on in the ds9 episode but there is certainly a sense there that this debate is actually uh part of a much bigger political picture and a much bigger battle that's going on you know between win and Beryl, uh essentially and and she in her typical way is really just using it's completely cynical she's using this dispute as a way to kind of plot almost a coup essentially you know to get him where she wants him and, and off him um as well as to kind of whip up a bit of a frenzy and, and gather support you're right it's all about her and all about her power and all about this idea as you say that that she has this kind of hotline to the prophets uh which of course as we find out throughout ds9 
the kind of tragedy of her life is she has never spoken to the prophets. They ignore her because they can see she's, you know, she's a not a good, she's not someone they would want to have anything to do with or, or that, that anyone would. Um, and there is this weird situation, I suppose, in, in DS9 that, um, you know, we were talking earlier about this idea of evolution as a sort of new concept to some degree to at least some of these people, even though scientifically being around for a while. In DS9, of course, I think we don't really see enough of the impact that the discovery of the wormhole must have had. I mean, it's one thing to have a religious society where everyone believes all this stuff, and that's fine. But then to have it literally appear, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, the second coming of Jesus or something. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit, it is a kind of a manifestation of their beliefs, a massive confirmation of all this stuff that they've believed in. I know they've got their orbs and so on, but, you know, to literally have this thing appear in the sky has got to have a big impact on that society. I feel like we don't really ever get to sort of trace that sort of is going on in the background but I suppose there is that sense that so there's this new uh you know there's this new kind of geopolitics going on ever since emissary and there are new you know there are there are politics going on on Bajor in terms of the kind of moderates and the more fundamentalist Bajoran uh clerics but there's also this kind of threat I suppose from you you know from this scientific study of something that was previously a myth in a sense you know now people can fly ships into it they can go and get readings they can uh do scans um you know suddenly it's it's not just in the realm of uh of the of, of belief it actually exists concretely in in the real world yeah i think also as well um one of the things that's really quite clear in um deep space 9 which i don't think you really get inherit the wind is inherit the wind there is a small conversation in um when i was saying when i was talking about the two lawyers sitting in their rocking chairs outside their hotel sort of talking about religion um and how one of them does kind of say you know like there's good things about this too it gives people hope it makes people feel like there's something better like after death all that sort of thing you know like the traditions is what kind of keeps our society together but apart from that one little conversation here at the wind i feel like the religion of the, the beliefs of the town and the sort of christian fundamentalist religion of the town is relatively ridiculed and not shown to be necessarily a good thing it doesn't seem to bring um the best sides out of out of the out of the population local population and um that's very explicitly shown when like you said the preacher does his little like um service out in the park and he's preaching um and then basically starts calling down hellfire on people um and terrorizing his daughter and so that's not shown as good but i think in deep space nine the bajoran religion is shown as being incredibly supportive to the bajoran like incredibly useful to the bajorans in a time of crisis so although um I'm not talking about like the sort of fundamentalist um, group that Wynne belongs to, but like Vedic Baral, you know, is a religious person and a religious leader. And he's shown as being um, a peaceable, intelligent, um, understanding man who, you know, uses the Bajoran religion to further progress and find um i don't know like enlightenment and and he you know sort of um, sort of reaches out to the federation you know as being part of the religion um reaches out to his fellow bajorans so it's not shown as completely bad and there are sides to the bajoran religion that have been incredibly important to the bajorans throughout the occupation 
uh, it, it, it implies that their religion helped them survive the occupation. It's helped them um, maintain their culture, you know, under extreme stress and under um, oppression and devastation and, you know, violence and all the stuff that came with the occupation. So in a way, there's an important point in, in, in the episode where Jake does that thing that you see a lot in Inherit the Wind. It actually happens in Inherit the Wind. Several times people have conversations about this, which is that somebody gets upset and they get angry and they sort of say, well, this is a stupid point of view and everyone who believes in it is stupid. Or, you know, um, at one point in Inherit the Wind, the young woman, um, the young love interest, female love interest, she says something like, you know, he's a bad man and everything he does is evil. Um, and, you know, this older woman the wife of the man that she's talking about chastises her and says, oh, you're so young and you just see things in absolute, in black or white. Like, you know, he's not going to be perfect. He's going to make mistakes. But because he makes a mistake, you see everything that he does and everything that he is is bad. And Jake says a similar thing to Cisco. And Cisco is facing a big, big, big issue here because this isn't just about like, um, you know, Vedic wins, fundamentalist Bajorans taking over the Vedic assembly. Um, and it's not just about like politics and religion mixing. It's also about and the future of the Bajoran people. It's also about the future of like the Bajorans and the Federation together. It's about the future of the relationship between Starfleet and the Bajorans, which is really important. And Cisco, so Cisco has a lot to lose here, but he counsels, he counsels Jake. So you think, I mean, I, I know I didn't think this because I know Cisco's an amazing person, amazing leader. But um, Jake is speaking very much as a young person whose teacher's been been persecuted, you know, his classroom's been blown up. Probably, I'm not sure it's blown up at that point. But and he sort of says, "Oh, why do the Bajorans believe this? You know, this is stupid. They're stupid." And Cisco says, "No, they're not. This is their interpretation of the wormhole. And just because it's not your interpretation doesn't mean it's it shouldn't be respected. You know, like." Like the Bajoran religion is incredibly important to them because it's been the thing that's helped them survive, you know, the last, however, well, I don't know what it was like, oh, last 60 or 80 years of occupation. So you have to respect that. And you have, and he says, what's the point in us being here if we're not going to respect each other's opinions and each other's views? Um, whereas Inherit the Wind, it's awfully hard to, to respect that town. A town of people burning effigies and shouting like, read your Bible, read your Bible and booing and screaming. And like, they seem like fools. And, but even then, like Gene Kelly, the newspaper man, the journalist is so snide about them. He's so cruel, you know? And yeah, I think their fundamentalist beliefs are kind of silly, but I also recognize that like one of the men that they interview for the jury, you know, he's, a poor like farm worker really well he he owns a store right but he sells farm sells feed for farm animals like he's not educated he's not had the opportunity to learn about darwinism but he's not even really that religious either do you know what i mean and uh, it's it's kind of like you're sort of caught in this film between thinking these townsfolk are just ridiculous but also at the same time not really wanting to agree with the like slick you know, city journalist who's calling them heathens either, because that doesn't seem a very nice thing to do. Whereas I feel the DS9 episode is a bit more, it's less black and white. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think also it's interesting, the DS9 episode doesn't really give us 
It doesn't give us a mob. It doesn't give us a huge amount of a sense of what all these other parents are really thinking. We, we get glimpses of it, I suppose, insofar as we see there's that scene, which is quite interesting, where they don't turn up for work. And Cisco basically says to Kira, you know, tell them if they don't turn up tomorrow, they're going to lose their jobs. Basically, I'm not interested in this kind of dispute. I mean, there is this sense of like the Bajorans and the Starfleet people working together, but not really having gelled somehow. Um, and as Neela uh, O'Brien's assistant, who turns out to be the would-be assassin, says, you know, they tend to kind of keep to themselves that there isn't that much interaction. I mean, obviously, Cisco's trying to push this sort of integration of the two sides and this idea they can all work uh, together. It's hard to say because, you know, the Bajorans, not only do they have their sort of creationist belief, I suppose, in... That's kind of what it comes down to, isn't it? Is it a sort of creationist belief in the wormhole? I mean, it's not literally about evolution, although Keiko does bring up the idea of evolution when she says, OK, so what's next? Say I agree to, you know, not not talk about this because Wynne says to her at one point, you know, how about you don't have to teach the religious version, but just don't talk about the wormhole, basically just put that off the agenda. And she says, OK, well, what about when we come to evolution? Which implies in universe that the Bajorans also don't believe in evolution, that they believe presumably prophets created them in some way or or something along those lines she also talks about the creation of the universe so i suppose there's this idea uh, uh, again sort of the, the idea that the bajorans are creationists there's also an interesting element which is kind of seems very by the by but neela says at one point if i get caught i'll be executed uh, now she does get caught so we kind of have to assume that at the end of the episode she's going off to face execution and we had in the previous episode this debate about whether a Cardassian should be executed uh, by the Bajorans so there is this kind of sense that yes Starfleet and the Bajorans are trying to work together and the goal we know ultimately is to bring Bajor into the Federation but the Federation doesn't allow capital punishment the Federation has values that are going to be you know there is going to be a serious kind of philosophical conflict here and there's going to have to be some kind of way of managing it and there is i suppose this kind of sense that bajorans are you know the cardassians always call them backward i mean goldacut refers to them as a kind of backward people there is a sort of sense from a federation perspective that i guess is what jake is saying is that the you know why have they clung to these these things that we rejected in this sort of roddenberry-esque you know star trek utopia uh if you think of next gen you, you know captain picard being mistaken for a god um, in Who Watches the Watchers, he's horrified. He thinks this is primitive behaviour. You know, this has to be. This is terrible that they're doing that. Cisco obviously has a slightly a much more complicated and nuanced relationship to being uh, told that he's the emissary. Um, we see that Kira actually is quite sympathetic to Win up until the point she realises what a evil opportunist she is. Essentially, she's she's sympathetic to her kind of philosophically. Um, but I suppose what we don't get is a sense of what all those um, people on the promenade who are gathering. I mean, there is a sense, just as in the film and just as in reality, as I say, it became a kind of circus. In the DS9 episode, we're told people are arriving, you, you know, uh, Quark is saying, oh, this is going to be great for business. You know, look at all these, uh, okay, fundamentalists or not, look at all these new customers kind of flooding into the station. And indeed, in uh, Dayton, the the meeting where it was decided that Scopes was going to allow himself to be put on trial was held at the local drugstore. And they actually convinced the guy who ran the drugstore that this trial would be great for Dayton because so many people would come. It would basically be a kind of tourist boon and he'd, you know, uh, be able to sell to all these people. He's the kind of real life Quark character in a sense. I mean, Quark is right. You know, uh, in, in reality, this did lead to this uh, huge... Uh, influx kind of put the town on the map in a sense um but what we don't get which i feel like quite often in star trek when there's a crowd you do get a kind of slightly 
stupid mob uh, as, as you tend to get on stage or in film whatever where everyone just sort of shouts versions of the same thing and they and they seem very easily swayed by a kind of you know powerful speaker or whatever um we don't quite see that we see that there's a lot of them and we see obviously they are sort of following wind's lead but they're not even though we get these big crowd scenes and because it's the season finale they have the budget to like get more and more extras in you know, it does feel really kind of packed at the end uh compared to what you normally get in a star trek episode um we don't ever get the sense that the the mob is not a threat there's no sense of the danger you know the danger comes from these political opportunists and this kind of uh assassination plot against Beryl. there's no danger that that group of people is going to riot for example there's not a sense that they're going to you know, that Keiko, okay, she's not going to be given a jumja stick, but she's not going to be, they're not going to turn violent against her or whatever. Whereas in Inherit the Wind, there is this sense, um, which I think is is partly creative license to an extent that they that they make the townsfolk much more extreme. They have them saying, you know, we'll damn him to hell. You know, they, they kind of have the kind of fire and brimstone element. Whereas they say in they're going to hang think, him. They sing a song yeah, about exactly. hang it, hanging, they hang, yeah, exactly, hanging from hanging. a tree. Yeah, yeah, violent. I mean, exactly, as you say, you know, like in America, well, you know, we had with the storming of the Capitol, didn't we? They were, you know, gallows ready for, you know, that level of kind of violence and uh, and the, the conflict spills out into something so dangerous there. I mean, I think in the, I suppose it's, in reality, it was more of a kind of, it was a debate that was really important to people. They felt, very strongly about it it went to the core of their beliefs but i don't think there was such a kind of um th- th- there wasn't that element of danger and obviously in the ds9 episode we've got the danger first of all maybe from the kind of fundamentalism which you know these days we tend to think of islamic fundamentalists more than christian fundamentalists i suppose you know we, we because we associate that with with the desire to kill people with kind of murderous intent and kind of violence and so on um that wasn't really there necessarily in the in the real story. I mean, actually, Clarence Darrow, although he rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way and a lot of people disagreed with him, including the judge who held him in contempt of court at one point and threatened to have him sent to prison for comments that he made about the townsfolk and their kind of backward ways. But even he actually conceded, to be honest, everyone's been quite polite to me here. You, you know, this town has been very welcoming. Uh, haven't had, you know, he, he wasn't on the receiving end of all this kind of hatred and hostility and so on. Although you could you could argue in the DS9, nor is Burial. I mean, Wynne and Burial both seem to be received relatively well by the kind of groups of people, by the crowds. It's just that Wynne has a kind of, you know, a deadly plan up her sleeve to use against him. Yeah, I sort of feel like um, the threat in DS9 is not so much the the mob, like you say, or the crowd. Um, I don't feel like the the average Bajoran is going to cause any harm to Cisco or Keiko. Um, and I think we're supposed to assume that Baral is actually more popular than Win. That Baral is like the favourite to become the next Kai. But I think that the, the threat comes from a stray person who is indoctrinated who is um, perhaps maybe, you know, slightly mentally unbalanced. Um, you know, just somebody who hears a message 
and then runs with it. And I think we actually have real life parallels of that. I'm not going to go into mentioning um, real life events where people have done that because I think we all know. Um, but there are, there have been in recent history, people who have gone to uh, listen to somebody talk, to somebody speak, whether it's a political leader or a religious leader who has basically preached hate. And then that individual's gone away and committed some sort of crime, um, sometimes a very violent crime. And, um, or it, sometimes it's not even in person hearing someone talk like, um, Vedic win it on the station. Sometimes it's somebody's on the internet and they're watching videos of hate, hate speech being put out there. Um, or they're reading, um, controversial, um, fundamentalist extremist information on the internet, um, talking on forums, all that sort of thing. And then they get inspired to go ahead and commit some atrocity by themselves. So I think that's kind of what the threat I thought was happening in the DS9 episode. Obviously, it turns out that it's a story, you know, it's a it's a TV show, it's a drama. So it turns out that it's slightly more of a of a sort of thriller plot than that, and that actually Vedic Win has, you know, actually con- created this conspiracy to assassinate Baral. But it could have, I guess, also gone the other way, um, and just been a engineer a Bajoran engineer on the station who perhaps perhaps some has some sort of who's unwell or who is um very lonely or is very susceptible to being brainwashed who listens to Vedic win and decides to take things into her own hands um and and kill people it could just be one person hearing that message and going crazy with it and I felt like that was kind of the sort of well, it didn't turn out to be that story, but it could have been that story. That's sort of the more like the uh, sort of the theme. I think the thing that is interesting about this is that how everyone changes after the school's blown up. And um, yeah, I felt like that was really the thing that changed everything. <coughs> That's what gets Vedic Baral onto the station. He doesn't want to get involved for political reasons, for religious reasons, whatever he doesn't want to get involved initially, right? He makes it quite clear. I think he says something about to Cisco about how the polit- uh, the prophets teach you patience, and and uh, Cisco says they also apparently teach you politics, you know, which I think is interesting. I I am generally personally not in favour of politics and religion mixing ever. I am strongly against politics and religion mixing, and I live in a country where um, we have a state church, so <laughs> it's interesting um, that this shows an American show and supposedly America is supposed to have a separation of church and state although I think we all know that's not actually true judging by the amount of prayers that are delivered at a presidential inauguration um, <laughs> uh, so and it's written on all the American money you know um, the word God so we all know I think that there isn't a real true separation of church and state but um, what I was and quite- even in the courtroom I mean in the in the trial in Tennessee this was an issue that was debated you know the defence asked could we please not have prayers to open court every day? Because this is kind of prejudicing, in a sense, it's sort of prejudicing the outcome. Um, but the court refused and basically said, you know, we always have prayers in our courtroom. You know, it's not for you to tell us uh, not to not to do that. So it's it, you're right. It's exactly it's kind of and, and the same is true here in other respects as well. You, you know, it's it, it's a weird one. Yes, we do have there is a sort of Church of England and so on. And it, it's a sort of weird I think in both countries there's this sort of slightly uh, ambiguous approach to it all. Obviously, in DS9, it's compounded by the fact that there are two, there are literally two. You know, there's 
the Federation and there are the Bajorans. So it's not so much a split within Bajoran society. It's kind of, it's more about the relationship between those two uh, those two societies. And I guess in in DS9, those two halves of the kind of DS9 community somehow. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it it's two different political system, isn't, systems, isn't it? So, um, and I mean, there are other political systems in DS, uh, in, in Star Trek that are also connected to religion, but I don't feel as strongly as perhaps maybe as Bajor. But like I was saying, yeah, like I do really feel that things change after the explosion happens. Um, and I feel that I feel like, I mean, Akira is supposed to sort of represent the sort of Bajorans who are working on the station with the Federation. And when Cisco talks about how we've worked together, we know each other, he turns and he looks at her because he, he's trying to send a message to her uh, because she's essentially the leader of leaders, leader of the Bajorans who work on the station, who are in service on the station. Um, she's sort of in charge of them, really, isn't she? Um, and I think that her demeanor is quite different. I think it also... Oda's demeanor, uh, Brian's, everybody's. It's it's a little bit like, you know, we were willing to sort of, we're not happy about it, but we're willing to sort of tolerate um, protests. We're willing to sort of tolerate disagreements. And but when you actually start becoming violent, like Kai, but uh, Kai Vedic Win can be fundamentalist if she wants to be. She can preach whatever she wants to preach. You know, we may not agree with it, um, but. You know, if it's going to become something that is going to escalate into violence, into physical threat, that's a whole nother matter entirely. And I feel the Federation would draw quite a line under that. You know, like, you know, we're willing that you see Starfleet officers are willing and a lot of episodes throughout all the series, Starfleet officers are willing to accept lots of different types of views, even views that are really go against their own view and go against the Starfleet's morals. But once this starts to become a situation where it's a there's a physical threat, of violence or of freedom or um, a physical threat, like people are being restrained or anything like that. The Federation and the Starfleet are like, no. <laughs> and I felt that, that that was really a moment in the episode. <laughs> and I think that's also for Brile. Like, this has gone too far. <laughs> like, I need to go sort this out, you know. Um, and he does it very publicly, doesn't he? He takes Wynn and forces her to stand where the bombed out school is. And he basically does the talking for her. He takes her hand and holds it with his. And he's like, we're going to do this. We're going to show them that we don't, we don't want the Federation to leave. We don't want to hurt anybody. Because before that, Wynne is starting to get, like, you know, she's starting to say, you know, you're evil. She uses the word evil at one point, I think. She sort of uh, turns from being, you know, the emissary, the emissary, which is kind of sickening, to suddenly being, you know... I thought differently You're about a soulless, you. You're you know, a, you have no. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, which is like fighting words. Of, uh, yeah, I know, know, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's true. It's like you don't it's want to start true. a war. <laughs> like, what are you doing? No, I mean, I think it's interesting. Obviously, this is the episode that introduces Win for the first time, and also that introduces Burial for the first time. I think, in some ways, this is Burial's best episode. I mean, a lot of people hate Vedic Burial as a character, and I have <laughs> to say, I do understand that hate because I think he often does come across as a bit wet and a bit sort of dull this episode he you know cisco is right he is a political operator he seems quite shrewd he's kind of playing a long game he kind of you know yes he's a good man he's a you know we we don't doubt his kind of sincerity and his intentions but he is being strategic as well and you're right he kind of outmaneuvers win in that situation so he is sort of as much as he says he wants to he just wanted to be a gardener and he didn't want any of this he is kind of playing that game uh just as she is 
Now, in some ways, with Wynne, I think, obviously, you know, Louise Fletcher does a brilliant job in this episode, as in every episode. In some ways, I, I think maybe it is a shame that she is so closely involved in this assassination plot, because it kind of it paints her very much as an out-and-out villain, effectively. And Kira's process of kind of disillusionment with her, it, it, it makes it quite easy for Kira, in a sense, that she finds out that this woman seems to be involved in plotting murder. I mean, that, that that's going to resolve any sort of ambiguity to some extent quite tidily. I think it's fascinating, that scene at the beginning, where Keiko says, uh, you know, does Wynne have many supporters on the station? And Kira just pipes up and says, well, she has me. And you're kind of like... Uh, and even rewatching it, you know, if you kind of know where the story is going, that always comes as a little bit of a shock, I think, uh, to find that Kira, uh, who, who we sort of think of as kind of religious moderate, actually, you know, is a fundamentalist by that definition. You know, her own spiritual beliefs are closer to Wynne's than to Beryl's at this stage anyway. And in some ways, I think if, if Wynne hadn't been so, hadn't had a, so much blood on her hands, in a sense, uh it it might have preserved that ambiguity a bit. And as we go forward with Wynne, she does become a bit like cut a complex character. You know, she is kind of a villain, but sometimes she does good things. You know, she's not irredeemable. She's not out and out evil. She's self-serving. I think that's what makes her such an interesting villain. She's self-serving, but she's not necessarily totally devoid of good intentions. Um, but of course, you know, this is our introduction to her. She's ultimately embroiled in an attempted assassination. Uh, by the time we get to the end of DS9, she makes this astonishing decision to side with the par race over the profits. And again, you know, I've always sort of felt that kind of final section of the DS9 story, the bit that doesn't quite work for me is Ducat and Wynne, who I think are both fantastic characters uh, throughout the series individually. When you get them both together, and you get that final arc, it does, it feels a little bit of a stretch for me somehow. And part of that is that it feels a stretch for me that Wynne would go that far. But then you have to remember, okay, the first time we met her, look how far she was willing to go. Look at the awful things she was willing to do. She's not just telling lies about people. She's not just smearing people. She's not just kind of playing games. She's, you know, uh, willing to kill, basically, to get power. And in some ways, I think, you know, maybe it would have been more interesting if it had been a little bit more subtle if it had been a little bit more about the influence that she's wielding maybe unintentionally if it had been a little bit less of a thriller and more of a kind of war of ideas because the episode kind of does both but it it does step up a gear um and in a lot of ways i think that works i, mean, I think it's a great uh story i think it's very dramatic i think it does have the kind of thrills as well as the big ideas you know you sort of think of the star trek morality play stuff it does all of that but it also has this kind of extra action element which certainly you don't get in inherit the wind really other than other than the, I suppose, this general threat of the mob but you don't you don't have you know a, what appears to be a b story initially about o'brien and and you know this guy's gone missing and so on and then turns out to be totally tied into the a story um but I do think it works very well. And it is a season finale. That's the other thing. I mean, they didn't do a big cliffhanger. They didn't do a kind of... Um, they didn't do the kind of season finale you might expect in some ways. But I think they did a brilliant DS9 finale insofar as they've just had duet. They've got this one following it up. They're kind of saying, this is what this show is about. These are the kind of ideas we're interested in. It doesn't have to be... It, you know, it ties into Emissary. It kind, it kind of brings that first season together in some ways uh it 
has a moment of kind of thinking, well, how far have we come since we started this journey? So it sort of ticks all those boxes in those ways, but it doesn't do the kind of big, you know, it's not the best of both worlds. It's not kind of, it's not leading into some, at least not in some very clear way, leading into some story. Although, of course, it does in many ways lead into the story that then opens, the very uh, bold three-part story that then opens season two of DS9, which I guess they probably wouldn't have done if they hadn't had this success here and managed to, you know, really knock it out of the park for the second week in a row with this episode. Um, and I do think it's Robert Hewitt Wolf who wrote it. I mean, it's interesting. I'm surprised, you know, Michael Pillar is the showrunner. Normally the showrunner would write the finale and they'd kind of write something big for it. Um, he doesn't, he gives it to someone else and he lets them write what is not a small story exactly, but it's a kind of, it's very much an episodic story, if you know what I mean. It's kind of, it's a typical Star Trek story as much as it kind of might then lead into bigger themes and bigger kind of sort of plot strands going forward. Um, but I, I think as an episode, for me anyway, it works uh, brilliantly and it's much tighter than Inherit the Wind is quite a long film. It's a two plus hour film. Um, I don't know what you felt about it. I felt having read all the stuff about the true story behind it for me it felt like a little bit I, d- I did like it but it felt like a little bit of a slog it felt a little bit slow partly because all the material was basically just lifted from what really happened ds9 doing it in 44 minutes or whatever is feels much tighter and much more kind of um uh condensed and it's also just i think it's a brilliant episode it has uh you know it's a great episode as i say best episode for Baral, probably best episode for keiko certainly going to be in your top three you know two characters that often are not written very well being written fantastically has really sparky dialogue uh you know like between keiko and win there's this great exchange where uh win says oh but you, you, you know win is sort of saying talking about the relationship between the wormhole and the celestial temple and so on and Keiko says well yes in a manner of speaking and she comes back with not apparently in your manner of speaking uh you know just really great kind of cutting precise lines because exactly hitting the nail on the head what is you know this idea of a manner of speaking is exactly uh encapsulating this idea of interpretation that you you know that words are not that this kind of literal fundamentalist literalist approach to words is not necessarily the key issue here. Uh, then we have, again, Odo has this great line um, when there's the guy who won't sell a jumja stick to uh, the O'Briens. And he says, seek the prophets. Odo says to him, seek them yourself. Again, kind of tapping into this idea, I suppose, in terms of Christianity, we'd say, well, some of the Christians in this story are not acting very Christian. Do you know what I mean? They're not um, embodying Christian values by being so... Uh, hostile to others who think differently to them by being so kind of, as you say, by using, uh, you know, Win is not, Win is the antithesis of, you know, open quotes, Christian values. Burial is, is the kind of more, you know, Burial is the sort of more Jesus-like character, if you know what I mean. Win is, is very much out for herself. You know, she's not really trying to help other people. She's not really, um, she's not really practising what she preaches, I suppose. And again, you know, Odo, just with that little line, really cutting to the heart of that so i think it's a fantastically well done episode although i think it is true that in some ways it um it goes for those kind of action beats and those thriller beats which work very much within the episode itself but had they known where they were going you know six or seven years down the line maybe they would have eased off a little bit on some of those and and that could have worked even better potentially yeah sort of if they thought that they had like seven years worth of seasons they might have like slowly revealed how villainous Wynne was rather than 
reveal it in the first hour. I feel like that it's not completely clear cut in the episode, which I think is good. They don't make it clear cut. They also don't make it <clears throat> completely resolved by the end of the episode. It's not completely clear that the Bajorans and the Federation are still are going to be able to work really, really well together beyond this episode. Like, you know, it's a developing, revolving relationship, which is good. And I think it's also frustrating for the audience because we can see how great the Federation are going to be for Bajor. It, it's, it's absolutely essential that Bajor become part of the Federation. Like, they're not going to be safe on their own. Um, and they're going to be much more successful if they're part of the Federation. So it's a frustrating for the audience. You know, we're on the side of the Federation. We want Bajor to be there. Um, but it's a long process that's going to take time. So I think that, I think that probably is one of the reasons why people, when they first watch DS9, as we know from the documentary, they weren't massively fond of it because it's not a happy, you know, like everyone's friends ending. Do you know what I mean? It's everybody's still kind of ill at ease with each other. And these two cultures are going to rub against each other the wrong way at times. But it's not completely clear cut because there is something here with Keiko, which is that, I mean, I firmly believe Keiko should be able to teach science. I also do not think Keiko should be in any danger for teaching science, like physical danger. Like I, I firmly, firmly against anybody blowing up the school, right? But Kira makes a point in the beginning, which is that the majority of the people you teach are Bajoran. The big percentage of the class of the kids that you teach are Bajoran. So, you can't completely disregard the Bajoran faith. You can't completely disregard Bajoran religion. Now, maybe Keiko is not the one to teach them. And Keiko makes that point. I leave the spiritual teaching and the religious teaching up to the Vedics. Um, it's not clear whether Vedic Quinn is a permanent resident of the station and is going to teach the students or whether or not the students have like, I don't know, Bajoran Sunday school or whatever. Maybe they all go to the temples for learning and lessons, you know, on a different day. But, there is a point where Kira is sort of saying, you know, like, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. And so perhaps maybe what Keiko should say is, there is also other interpretations, as you may learn at Temple when you go to be taught by the Vedics, you know, but this is the scientific, you know, like view, right? So, um, and I feel like the... Cisco sort of says that to Jake. He makes that clear to Jake that there's room for, again, actually, he says it actually right after Kira and Keiko talk to him. He says there's enough room on the station for, for all interpretations, you know, for all different views. Um, so I think that's also important as well. Like, obviously, Keiko should be sold a jumdress stick or whatever. I mean, the people shouldn't like persecute against her. Um, and Kai wins way is like my way or the highway in a bit like inherit the wind. Like, like you mentioned the doctor, or not doctor, sorry, the teacher inherit the wind does say to his girlfriend, his fiance, I, you know, there are other towns that are also religious. There are other places where people believe in Christianity, but they're not all like this, you know, like not all Christian Christians are like these Christians and not all Christian towns are like this Christian town. Um, that, you know, I can't be me. I can't be, I can't be allowed to think and believe and feel what I feel if, um, you know, people are telling me how I should think and feel all the time and not allowing me to have my own beliefs. But there is a point to be made that I think Keiko does kind of gloss over, which is that she's on a Bajoran station next to Bajor in Bajoran space, teaching a whole bunch of Bajoran kids. So it's a bit, like naive if she didn't think she was ever going to come across a Bajoran belief that didn't match one of her 
lessons. Do you know what I mean? And it's not really even her beliefs because like we don't know if Keiko has a religion or not, but doesn't match like the established scientific fact. Um, and you don't want to deny scientific fact, but you also want to understand that people um, practice religion for a reason, don't they? they? I mean, they have beliefs and you can't completely disregard them. Um, whereas I feel like it's kind of Keiko's relationships, relationship with the Bajoran community is sort of contrasted with O'Brien's relationship with the young Bajoran engineer, who obviously <laughs> turns out to be completely and utterly like um, deceiving him and is actually the assassin. But um, it seems like before that, they are actually finding a way to work together and they found a common ground, which obviously doesn't affect, it's not connected to Bajoran religion because it's engineering, but somehow they've managed to find this common ground. Um, and I mean, that hasn't really happened with Keiko. We don't see her having any, her have any Bajoran friends. You know, she might care for her students and she might respect their parents, but do you know what I mean? I, I wonder if she just hasn't assimilated or acclimatised that well compared to her husband. It's a good point, I think. And I I understand your criticism of Keiko. It's tricky for me. I, I, I'm i more on Keiko's side, I suppose. And instinctively, I suppose, because I come at I'm these issues. I'm not on Kai Wynn's side, let me emphasize. No, I understand that. <laughs> I think that's the point. Is that, you know, but you could be on Cisco's side. Cisco's kind of... <laughs> in the middle somehow I suppose instinctively I'm a bit more sympathetic to both Jake and Keiko and maybe that's coming to DS9 off the back of years of next gen and 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 so on and the kind of traditional Roddenberry position which was you know pretty much we don't do religion we don't have time for any of that you know all of that's going to have died out by this point uh, and obviously DS9 is doing something very different and is saying you know no we can take this seriously we can respect these people actually look their beliefs are grounded in reality to an extent you know yeah they call them prophets we call them wormhole aliens but they believe in something that does exist you can quantify it to some extent you know there, there is a kind of basis to the things they're saying they're not just nonsensical made-up stories necessarily I don't know, it's tricky for me because I I think this is a great Keiko episode and there aren't many of them. And also she's really ballsy. The way she takes on Kai Wynn, I mean, or, sorry, Vedic Wynn, uh, a lot of people would be quite intimidated by Wynn. Keiko's not at all. She's like, she's up for a fight. She's quite, uh, she's quite tough. She also does this brilliant thing where um, Jake says after this visit from Wynn, which Keiko is obviously pretty pissed off about, she comes in and she changes the curriculum and next week she teaches them all about Galileo. So she's kind of casting herself in this role of this kind of persecuted hero of science. Uh, you, you know, she's quite, um, it's quite a ballsy move, I think, to do that somehow. Um, and, and there is an interesting parallel with the story of Galileo here, because obviously the sort of ostensible parallel is the Scopes trial, I suppose, and Inherit the Wind, which because it's about a teacher and the idea of, you know, infecting the minds of children and so on. And, and, and there are all these various parallels, you know, the two leaders who come to town and try to uh, put their position and, and, and so on, the two, you know, great speakers or whatever. Um, but there is also this kind of hint of the story of Galileo behind it. Wynne asks for Keiko to recant. Now, that is the language of the Inquisition. Inquisition. That's the language of the Inquisition. That's the language of Galileo's trial rather than uh, the situation in the Scopes trial. I mean, you and I talked about Galileo in relation to a Voyager episode, Distant Origin, uh, some time ago now. But, you, you know, that's that's another kind of 
model of this sort of persecution that I suppose is in the background. And I guess with all these stories, there's a sense of what has gone before. And even in the Scopes trial itself, uh, you know, Darrow makes this impassioned speech where he basically... uh, he says it's kind of a slippery slope. What he's saying is, okay, so you're saying this is public money to a public school and therefore the state has the right to say what can and can't be taught and they have the right to ban certain things. That's stage one. Uh, What's next? Next, it's the private schools where there's no financial arrangement. Next, it's uh, that you're not allowed to speak these ideas in public. Next, it's these books get burnt. Uh, Next, it's, you know, people are... Do you know what I mean? Basically, the level of kind of persecution gets worse and worse it's a slippery slope towards some kind of nightmare scenario and he says and soon we'll be back uh in the middle ages basically um burning witches at the stake and so on so there's this kind of sense of whenever this conflict rears its head i suppose it is the idea that this is almost a universal conflict this is the same issue that just repeats over and over again in history and the the terms might be different and the exact things that are being the specifics might be different but the kind of fundamentals of it uh, persist and that that's sort of the same story and I guess that's what you're getting in in DS9 in a sense this is the 24th century this is you know uh, in the far reaches of deep space but this is kind of the same issue coming up again and again um, this battle this maybe this is a sort of never-ending battle between you, you know however you want to frame it sort of reason and belief or you know science and religion I suppose we would say yeah and I think in Inherit the Wind there's no denying that they're all getting fed religion somehow. So I think with that is it's quite clear that um, the religion part of the education is taken care of. You know, if their parents choose to send them to church, they're being preached to by the local preacher. You know, uh, um, that hellfire and brimstone um, <laughs> guy. Um, but the 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 science teaching of part of their education is only being taken care of in school when they actually get taught by the specific teacher. Whereas in the DS9 episode, I guess for me it's a bit more grey in the sense that I do feel that the Bajoran children should be taught religion too, you know, Um, that it's such an inherent part of their culture. It's something that's helped the Bajorans to get through the occupation. It's deeply rooted in their history. Um, And it's, you know, something that they, you know, seems to affect their daily lives. That they probably are the most religious, well, at least one of the most religious cultures that you would encounter in the entire Star Trek um, franchise. And so because it is such a part of their culture and their religion, I do feel the students should be taught it as well. But we don't, we're not really seeing that, I suppose, is what I'm saying. What we're seeing is Keiko teaching them science, which isn't a bad thing either. They should be taught science too. So at first, sometimes, at first right in the beginning, I mean, I don't agree with Kai, Win, Vedic, Win. I don't agree with one at all. But um, at, at first, I'm so, I was sort of thinking, well, that conversation that Cisco does have with, with Keiko, immediately Keiko's like, no. And I just think, well, maybe, you know, maybe there should be some teaching of religion in the school. We don't need Keiko to do it. She's not an expert on Bajoran religion. Um, but maybe, we, you know, maybe there should be. It's like one or the other. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it can't just be one or the other. Like, it, sometimes you have to combine the two. I mean, in our education system, in the UK, I don't know about you, but for for me, when I was before GCSE, which is like middle school exams for any of the Americans in the audience, um, before GCSE, it was compulsory for me to do religious education, um, just as it was compulsory for me to do science, just as it was compulsory for me to do maths and English. Um, I sat a little exam in religious education, 
And, you know, they did, I mean, I guess in in religious education, they weren't teaching me that Darwinism wasn't real. But, you know, they did teach me, you know, um, the different religious practices of Muslims or Buddhists. We went and visited a Sikh Gurdwara, you know, and do I believe in all the Sikh gods? No, but I learned about them because I was learning about the religions of other people, other kids in my class and in my community. Um because not everybody was, you know, I don't know, the children of Quakers or Christians or um so I think I think I can see that the whereas in Inherit the Wind, <laughs> there's no denying that they're all being taught religion all the time. Um and I guess in a way you, I think you're supposed to assume the Bajoran children on the station are being taught religion because there is a temple on the station, isn't there? Um Yeah. So at first I was actually, I wasn't sympathetic to Wynne, but at first I was, I guess, sympathetic to Kira's point of view, where she was like, there are a lot of Bajoran children, you're teaching a lot of Bajoran children, you can't ignore that fact. But then it sort of tips over, doesn't it? Because then Kai Wynne is like, I don't want you teaching science at all, you know, and you can't have that. You can't have the curriculum be so dominated that only one viewpoint is being taught. You know, I mean, even in like politics lessons at school now they they teach different political um theories you know so it's not like everybody's only learning one theory um because you want the children to think as much as possible and be that keep their minds as open as much as possible that's what you want and that's not what win wants though you do and i guess these are difficult questions i mean the federation on one level is very kind of pluralist uh very respectful uh, infinite diversity and infinite combinations etc at the same time there are sort of basic ideas sort of federation ideas i suppose and ideals i mean there's this point early on in the episode where uh kira i think says that teaching science without religion or without a spiritual dimension is a philosophy not something essentially real do you know what i mean that that's that's that in itself is a kind of interpretation of reality basically to remove the mystical or to remove the spiritual now that is not a belief that's going to go down particularly well i think generally speaking in the federation that's kind of up against their basic assumptions and basic values bajor obviously is you know it does have in common with tennessee in 1925 it is a very religious community the sense we get we, we don't very often meet bajorans who uh have no religious faith or who are atheists or who are kind of you know agnostics or who have decided to subscribe to Klingon religion or something else you know they they there are there is an element of the kind of monoculture to it as much as there are different schools of thought and different well, sort of they all wear uh, an earring don't they they all wear those earrings yeah exactly which is essentially like um, wearing a crucifix right it's like wearing a crucifix yeah you're right it is so so they are a very religious community but you know as was uh Dayton Tennessee I mean even though Clarence Darrow took very seriously the process of juror selection and trying to find the jury that would give him the best chance in the trial, he only managed to find one juror who wasn't going to church every week, you, you know, among that jury, the rest of them all were. And that was, you know, that's probably typical for that community. That's the kind of community um, that it was. So it's, I think it's a kind of, I don't know, it, it, it's a tricky one. When it comes to religious education, Yes, I think it's better. I mean, what what we try to do, I don't know how it works in America. I guess what tries, what, what the intention in this country is that rather than just being fed whatever the 
majority religion is you learn about other religions so it's true you learn about hindus and muslims and sikhs and so on i have to say in my experience re classes the the only person who become no one becomes an re teacher unless they're religious themselves and therefore i'm sure you know 98 plus percent of re teachers are christians and therefore what you have is you know even if you're in a community where actually I mean, a lot of, I think, I I don't know what the number of Christians in the UK is these days, but it's certainly a lot lower than it was before. In terms of teachers, I mean, I would say, again, you know, I don't know, but when I was at school, okay, there there would be some teachers who are Christians and plenty of teachers who probably weren't, but you could guarantee that your RE teachers were Christians. Now, what that means is that even with the best will and intentions in the world and trying to be respectful and so on, you have someone who believes in one set of religious beliefs who's trying to teach you about other ones and I don't know I always felt you could tell when they that there was a sort of a bit of an attitude sometimes or a bit of a sense of kind of well yes they believe this thing but you know that's a bit you know a bit silly or that's a bit kind of foreign or that's a bit do you know what I mean and and somehow the kind of Christian religion is sort of is seen as more it's almost like the default like that's the sort of starting point and we'll, we'll look at some of these wacky alternatives I don't know so I always had a bit of an issue with the way that RE works I have to say my son now goes to a Christian school, which I had a huge uh, problem with. Uh, but my partner talked me around on because, you know, as with a lot of people in this country, you know, you have, a lot of people make a lot of compromises to get their kids into decent schools. Some people move house. Uh, some people pay, even if they don't really believe in paying for education. Uh, some people uh some people fake really i mean at least actually the school that my son goes to they didn't ask anyone you know they didn't ask what if we were religious or not they accept that a lot of people aren't but you know some people will completely fake a religious belief that they don't have to try and get the kids into the right school so it's problematic i don't personally i don't think it makes me uncomfortable it makes me uncomfortable that he's being taught things as being true that i think should be at least in an RE lesson, they're taught us, okay, these people believe this and other people believe this and different people believe different things. They're not being told. And then this hap- you, you know, this is something that literally happened. So I don't know, my preference would be that there was no such thing as religious schools personally, because I actually think that schooling and religion should be separate. And fine, if people want to take their kids along to church with them at the weekend, then I suppose that's their business and they can tell them whatever they believe privately. But I don't really think that the the education system of the country should be embroiled in all that personally. But, you know, it, the, they're difficult issues. I can see they're difficult issues. And I can see that Keiko, at the very least, is a bit insensitive and maybe a bit naive, as you say, thinking that she's got a class that's primarily made up of Bajorans who, you know, which is, a, a, it would be a bit like if you went to, I don't know, a community. I mean, you know, you and I growing up in, in England, where it's, yes, it is sort of, on one level, it's a Christian country, but there's also, uh, particularly say in London, there's not, there's a wide variety of beliefs and also a lot of uh, non-beliefs, if you know what I mean. It's 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 not a kind of religious community like 1920s Tennessee. Um, but there might be places where you would go, where you would find a community where there were a lot of people with a particular faith or a particular belief. And at the very least, I think you'd want to be sensitive to that. You'd want to be kind of aware of that. And uh, and it's true, Keiko doesn't seem to, doesn't really seem to have occurred to her that that might be relevant in any way, which maybe is a failure on her part as a teacher. 
But, you know, she was meant to be a botanist, so I don't know how she, you know, not only yeah, does she I, force I to be a say, teacher, but she becomes this, like, I'm crusading. I'm surprised she's teaching you know. about Galileo, to be honest. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, I, I absolutely loved religious education when I was at school, um, but it was taught very much as a cultural subject, not a spiritual one. I don't feel like whenever I was learning about the other religions that I was learning about spirituality. I felt like I was learning about the cultural practices of other people, which is one of the reasons why I loved it, because it's a little bit like how I love Star Trek. I mean, I love learning about the cultural practices of different different groups in Star Trek. Um, and, you know, just like I, I like love learning about different periods of history in different countries. So that was one of the things I think I always found interesting. I mean, whether or not I was ever like tempted to convert to another religion was like I was definitely not do you know what I mean like it wasn't like I mean I didn't have a religion like growing up I was brought up quite secular so like you know I I, I wasn't like tempted to become a like a Jew you know to convert to Judaism after learning about Judaism in school I just felt like I was learning about other people who were different and had different ideas and that was interesting um but I genuinely think that um and I wouldn't expect Keiko to teach people about Bajoran religion. I don't think that's her job. But I agree with you. There is a certain level of insensitivity there. But I think in the way it's addressed in the episode, because it's shown by Jake later on, who not because Jake is a bad person, but because Jake is young and he's, he cares about his teacher and he's trying to defend his teacher and he's confused about the different ideas. Um, and he probably doesn't like it that everyone in his class has gone one day or the school friends are, are not coming to school anymore. Um and so he sort of says this to his father and then his father sort of explains, you have to be sensitive to other people and their different opinions. Um, but the, the, the problem is that it's almost like people who are trying to compromise meeting people who are no, totally unwilling to compromise. I think even the character of um, Drummond, is it Drummond? Yeah, even the character of Drummond, who's the Clarence Darrow character in Inherit the Wind, even he, like, he might be agnostic, he may not believe in the Bible, but he's not against the Bible. Like, at one point they ask him, like, are you against the Bible? Or they say something like that. And he's like, no, it's a book. And there's some stuff in the Bible that's good. And he's quite clear to the journalist at the end of the film, like, you know, that this isn't clear cut. These people aren't just awful, like the way that, you know, the journalist himself like sort of talking about Brady, about what an idiot he was. And, you know, Drummond's like, you know, you don't just condemn a man's entire life because he's, you know, shown some real foolish behaviour towards the end of it. Um, he's not against the Bible. He's not against the messages, all the messages in the Bible. He's thinking that it's a book that should be taught as a book and interpreted as a book, just like Darwin's book like Darwin's book should also be taught and should also be he wants both to be taught he wants both to be looked at and examined he doesn't want to get rid of religion um, altogether from every school ever he wants it to be taught in conjunction or separately but like he wants it to be taught with science he wants science to be taught and then also people to read the bible if they want to read the bible and I think that's kind of what's happening in the DS9 episode. Like, is Keiko against the Bajoran religion? I don't think she is. It's never implied in the episode that she's against the Bajorans or the religion. Um, but it's that, you know, and the same with Cisco. It's that they're trying to compromise. They're trying to say there's room for all faiths and all ideas here. And they're, they're facing this brick wall of fundamentalism where, like, it's fun, you know, I mean, just the name, just the title of the, just the, the name of that type of belief, fundamentalist. You can't really fight that because 
they're never ever going to compromise with you because they're fundamentalists, you know, like they're never going to reach a common ground with you because they don't ever want you to think what you think and they don't ever want you to say what you say and they don't ever want you to teach what you're going to teach. So when, like, apart from just using religion as a source of power for her, she's also, she was never going to be happy with Keiko. What would Wynne be happy with? She'd probably be happy if all the Bajoran kids were just being taught by Vedic. Or even then, I don't know if she'd be happy. Maybe she doesn't even want the Bajoran kids to be interacting with the Federation. Maybe she doesn't want Federation kids and Bajoran kids taught in the same school. I feel like going down Wynne's route is just going to lead to like mass segregation and it leads to a situation where, you know, the Bajorans aren't interacting with anybody outside of Bajor and she's basically the queen of it all. <laughs> and that actually is what, quite shockingly, I think Kira is proposing in that scene early on. You know, she says, maybe we need another school. Basically, you know, you can teach your Federation values in your school and we'll have a Bajoran school for the Bajorans, which you're right, is a kind of segregation in a sense. It is very much saying these two communities can't, coexist there isn't enough that ties them together which i suppose is where my issue with faith schools comes in as well you know it does make me kind of uncomfortable i mean it makes me uncomfortable the idea of my son being taught things that i frankly think are wrong uh and you know he's five he can't really it's 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 quite tricky to try and explain okay yeah well some people believe that but you know uh, other people believe this or that or the other or whatever it's complicated for children to grasp that i suppose um unless that's how it's presented in the first place but it also makes me uncomfortable, the idea of there being other communities where people feel that they they can't send their kids to a sort of mainstream multicultural school because they they feel that, that it's essential that, that they, you know, that they have kind of control over that in a sense. They have their own sort of cultural environment where their own beliefs are. I, I don't know. It, I, I, I don't like that idea. I think there should be one school on the station. I think you're right. They could get... They could get a Vedic in, they could get a Klingon priest in, they could get, do you know what I mean? They could get different people in to talk about uh, these things. And you're right, I suppose, the model of teaching religious education as kind of cultural practice, in theory, is is better because it means you can talk about uh, what different people believe and what people do and so on in a slightly more detached way. I just, I do think that it, it is problematic in practice how that works uh but but it's a good idea and probably in the world of star trek i mean we don't know all that much about education obviously you know we see keiko school we see the school on the enterprise d starfleet provides education for federation citizens and others in this instance presumably they do learn about i mean they they do seem to learn a lot about other cultures so i'm sure they do learn about other cultures religious beliefs in that kind of way in that model so even if federation society as a whole is pretty secular uh they are at least informed about some of those practices and some of those views but but maybe what they don't have is these sort of uncomfortable compromises and these kind of slightly confusing ambiguities where you're right you know notionally there's a distinction between church and state and yet there are all these examples where there doesn't seem to be and you, you know all these kind of weird uh you know the courtroom is supposedly impartial and yet they're they have prayers at the start of every session for a particular religion that kind of, you know, suggests a lack of impartiality. And in fact, that's the thing that Clarence Darrow says that gets him found in contempt of court, is he basically essentially says the judge is not impartial in this situation, that the, the judge is, you, you know, kind of very clearly biased. Um, and think- this is what the, the, the judge uh, says is, is unacceptable. They have this great exchange where he says... Um, 
what is it, it, the judge says something like you know well i i might hope that uh that you would believe that i'm capable of um you, you know I, I hope that you can accept that i'm capable of being impartial and kind of discharging my duty or something and darrow sort of spits back well i can you know you can hope and that's what really riles the judge. It's like this, it is contempt, you know, it's contemptuous. He is, he is contemptuous. And there is this sense of, yes, there's a kind of pluralism. They're saying, yes, he's, he's, he's saying there shouldn't be a contradiction between Christians and Darwinism. It's possible to believe in both, to interpret the Bible in a way that is in accordance with science rather than battling. It's sort of saying we can all get along. We can, these things can coexist. But at a certain level, it's like, yes there's room for all philosophies as cisco says but not yours and you know and wind kind of crosses that line as well it's like once you cross a certain point it's the sort of old dilemma of being intolerant of intolerance isn't it it's like yes there's room for all these different positions but if you're gonna if you're gonna take the position that there isn't room for any other positions then we're not okay with that one do you know what i mean so it's like yes you know this is all okay but but not you and in this case win is very much the the you that has kind of transgressed that um, that sort of unspoken rule somehow. I think they make that point about the courtroom not being completely unbiased in Inherit the Wind because the camera keeps showing the statue of justice blindfolded. And um, the whole point is that uh, justice is a woman holding two balanced scales, right? But she's blindfolded. So she can't necessarily tip the scales herself by looking at them or whatever because she can't She's supposed to be blind. She's not supposed to see the defence of the prosecution. She's not, not supposed to show any favour to either side. It's supposed to be... You, and I think if they thought that the court was unbiased, they wouldn't keep showing that image of the statue of blindfolded justice. The interesting thing about Inherit the Wind and the Scopes Monkey Trial is that there was a law, an unjust discriminative law, right? So they're challenging that. In the Deep Space Nine episode... Is there really any issue? I mean, yes, Keiko maybe could get a Vedic in to talk to everybody about Bajoran religion. It'd probably do Jake good to learn some of it too, right? So maybe Keiko could amend her curriculum a bit more to include lots more stuff. But we don't know if she's not doing that. There's no indication. We don't have any clear idea of all of Keiko's curriculum. So we can't. We shouldn't judge her, I suppose. But is there really a problem? There isn't really a problem until Wynne gets involved. So I feel a little bit like in the DS9 episode, they're not challenging an unjust law. There isn't a problem that already exists. It's Wynne coming in and bringing the, bringing the storm with her. And she does that because she wants to get rid of Boral and also because she wants power and followers. So... And it's, it's a, a pretext. Little... Ultimately, it's, you know, it's exactly, it's all, yeah. you know, it's not genuine. Whereas at least I think we could say in the real situation, as much as uh, Brian you know, the Brady character in the film is somewhat misguided. And certainly in the film, we see him really kind of losing it by the end. You know what I mean? There's that kind of scene where he he's kind of ranting and raving uh, and then collapses and dies of a heart attack or whatever. But he's I mean, not you know, a bad he, he's person, sort of, though. Really, he's not, he? No, he's not a bad person. He makes he's mistakes, not a and he's, he's not a bad person. And he's genuine. He believe, I think he believes what he's saying. He's actually, you know, uh, unlike, I don't know, you, you know, to bring it back to the, the present and the kind of legions of uh spokespeople we've had to deal with for the past few years saying things that you are just completely baffled by and you you think you know you can't possibly believe what you're saying you you know someone's told you to say this and you're kind of parroting nonsense i think he you know he absolutely he believed he was right he thought he was on the right side of this issue he thought he could win uh 
he thought he was doing the right thing. You know, that that's what makes it an interesting story. Um, he's not an out-and-out villain. Uh, Wynne ultimately, I suppose, is an out-and-out villain and she gets away with it. And the fact is she leaves, you know, poor old Neela gets carted off, presumably, to face the Bajoran death penalty. Uh, Wynne gets off scot-free. The only real consequence for her, you know, we see Kira obviously has lost faith in her. Maybe some other people have as well. Uh, we're aware, Cisco is aware that she's a bit of a dangerous force to deal with going forward. But ultimately, uh, you know, she's got away with it. Her hands are clean as far as anyone's concerned. And she can go on to the next unspeakable, you know, act that she's going to attempt in her, you, you know, and we, and we get this, uh, you know, and this is the beginning of that story. It's the beginning of a lot of those fascinating stories that we see of her rise to power, her kind of battle with Beryl, um, which ultimately she ends up winning um, and she does get the power that she wants and she, you know, abuses it predictably. Um, but this is, she's I think, horrible. you know, I do think it's a great episode. I think it's, she, yeah, I know it is absolutely. And I think she's a fantastic villain. And I think if nothing else, this episode brings a brilliant character into the Star Trek universe, who's unlike any that we've had before or, or, or since, frankly, um, fantastic performance from Louise Fletcher uh you, you know it's it, it lays a lot of groundwork in some ways it's you know it's not one of those big cliffhanger episodes it's not bringing in the dominion it's not bringing in some huge plot point but it kind of it does lay a lot of groundwork for what the show can do going forward and what kind of issues the show can be interested in particularly in relation to the Bajorans yeah it's a good episode I think that I kind of wish that some of the new series would do episodes like this as well I think something where they take a dilemma that, you know, a sort of uh, a dilemma that I guess they, they are doing it with some other stuff, but like a, a sort of real like debate between two di- two opposing sides that as an audience member, you can't always decide like right away which one you're going to sympathize with. Um, and then, I mean, I, I think pretty clearly very early on, I didn't sympathize with Wynne, um, but yeah. I did kind of sympathize with the Bajorans as well as Keiko. Um, and just not really... And I, I sympathise with Cisco because I'm trying to make all these different things work on the same station. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. really hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a tough it was job. A, it's a, yeah. <laughs> and especially, you know, the previous episode, you had the Bajorans going nuts for this Cardassian, you know, for, for understandable reasons. And you did have there a mob, mob justice effectively, in that the Cardassian was killed by a random member of the mob. I tend to think of it as like, wow, these two amazing, like two best episodes of the season back to back as the, you know, almost like not a two part finale, but just like two really cracking, uh, strong episodes. But they do both revolve essentially around, around this Bajoran, uh, around sort of not problems exactly, but like issues to do with Bajor and the Bajorans and their sort of collective beliefs. Uh, and how and that's where the conflict comes from. Do you know what I mean? So the, there's the conflict with the Cardassian, which okay, in one level it's quite personal with him and Kira, and it's quite intimate, but it's also it stands in for this huge legacy uh, of you know the uh, appalling brutality of the occupation and the feelings around that. Then here you've got the sort of other side of the Bajoran story, which is the religious side. And I suppose those are the two things that define the Bajorans in DS9 is their experiences in the occupation and their religion and. DS9 ends its first season, which is a pretty um, mixed bag, I would say, you know, starting off very strong with Emissary. And then there are a lot of real, you know, clunkers in there. But it ends this season really going into the Bajorans in a big way 
uh, and exploring these these two key aspects of the sort of Bajoran identity in these two episodes and really giving us a lot to chew on uh, with that. And then going forwards, you know, into this great three-parter that's going to really go into the kind of politics of Bajor. So I suppose the series does, you know, later on, obviously, it becomes this big war story about the Dominion and the Gamma Quadrant and everything. Whereas early DS9, the Gamma Quadrant is there, but it's almost... It, it makes the station an important place, but but really the show seems to be about what Cisco's mission ostensibly is to bring Bajor into the Federation. And I think it's interesting in these early seasons that that's how they choose to end the season. That's what they see as the ongoing story is between the Federation and Bajor, that relationship. Um, obviously in later seasons that will become a, a smaller part of the story in a way that becomes part of it, but it's not really what the show's about anymore no and i do think that star trek sometimes is at its best when it is um a story about the federation coming up against a culture that's very different than the rest of the federation and also when it's the series like the state the sort of franchise really does the like really delve deep into um an alien culture like i think a lot of the episodes about the klingons a lot of episodes about the um, sort of the Romulans and the Vulcans cultures, like I do find that some of those are the best ones. Um, and um, I mean, I guess it depends on what you like as an audience member. Some people really love, you know, the episodes where there's a sort of um, scientific phenomena that somebody has to investigate. Um, I personally am one of the viewers that prefers the episodes where it's about a culture and some sort of moral dilemma. Um, I guess the series is good as it has something for both those different kind of groups of viewers as well. Um, but DS9 really is the series for that. You know, it really is the series for like delving into a conflict and seeing different sides of it, presenting different um, sides of an argument, um, showing people in conflict, either finding compromise um, or going to war with each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> well the dominion are kind of the yes we believe in everything but not you they're they're the kind of not you again aren't they because there's no compromising there is... with that there's not re- well you can make a deal with them if you're in the right situation but yeah you're right there is a kind of religious belief there as well so you're talking yeah. about another blind faith i did mm. actually think of the the vorta mm. but i feel like that's a faith that is genetically bred into them that they don't really have much of a choice over yeah and again, um, it leads to. I suppose water? again, it's that is sense it the that they can't. It's the water. Yeah, the water who yeah. believe who believe in the founders and everything. Yes, you're right. And I suppose there's that sense that they're not they're not keen to coexist with others in a sort of pluralistic way and accept. Well, we believe this, and you believe that. They need to control everyone else and kind of dominate them and so on. I feel personally, this is just me though. The Star Trek is at its best when it delves into other cultures and the Federation encountering and really delves deep into other alien species rather than the episodes where the people are just investigating scientific phenomena. A lot of people love those episodes though, but that's fine. Everybody's entitled to their own episodes. (laughs) But this is a great one. I think this is a great classic sort of DS9 story and it sort of, it does really pin their colours to the mast as to what the show is about, I think. And a lot of big issues, you know, uh, maybe we've only scratched the surface of them. I mean, this is certainly one could get heated in the Babel conference if people have strong opinions on this. I'd be interested <laughs> to hear them because we're coming at this from one perspective, obviously, uh, you know, our background where we've grown up, our beliefs, etc. Other people will approach it differently. I'd be interested. I mean, I don't think there's anyone who's going to be defending Win exactly, but there might be people who... Uh, 
<laughs> see her slightly differently to how we do or, or kind of have resonances for her that maybe don't click for us or, or whatever. So, you know, be interested to hear it. Well, it's been fun, Clara, talking about the Scopes monkey trial and um, Inherit the Wind. And I, I don't think we went too dark this time around, obviously. No, you know. no, no. Uh, so we'll see what we come up with next time. But thanks as ever for joining <laughs> Nobody me. Nobody died. Culture. Nobody died. <laughs> no. Well, except that poor guy in the, in the Jeffrey's tube. Oh, that's true. Whatever his name Actually, was. somebody yeah. did die. Yeah, sorry. Died. Sorry, yeah. guys. <laughs> but we don't talk about that. Anyway, uh, thanks as ever and see you soon, I hope. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at Clara Jean MC and Tony at, at AJ Black Writer. You're blended already.